Hello. Welcome to Sail on the Podcast. We are your hosts and favorite Salem tour guides. My name is Jeffrey Lilly. And I'm Sarah Black. And today we have True Crime Pot 2. Pot 2, my turn. Oh, I'm once again so <laughs> excited, although slightly disappointed in, no offense to your office, Jeffrey, the vibe is just a little different. Our first true crime recording, we were in Jeffrey's bedroom, <laughs> and it was, what, 11 o'clock at night by the time we started? Yeah. And the lights were obviously dim, no quiet, kind of spooky. We had some ciders flowing. Now it's like, 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 and it's like wood finished, like vaulted ceilings. We're surrounded by skulls. Yes. Like, yep. I and mean, only two of them are real, but there's, I think I counted, there's like 28 different... I was going to guess in the 20s. Okay. Yeah. 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 Jeffrey loves his skulls. But now it's one in the afternoon and there are tourists just on the other side of these walls. Yeah. So different vibe. But no longer next to Lafayette Street, which I guess is vaguely appropriate because we're not talking about it anymore. You're right. And we're actually closer to where we're going to be talking about today. Okay. So, so I guess it is quite fitting. There we go. We have moved locations as we have moved stories. I have found the silver lining. <laughs> but first, let's do a couple quick Patreon shout outs. We got some new signups here. Okay. So first up uh, is a slight correction. Uh, fairly certain last week or... Last episode, whenever, what are we doing? Do you know? Okay, don't worry about it. Last true crime episode. Okay. Uh, I said Maria Kraus. It's Marla Kraus. So uh, if that is what I said, which I think is what we said, then correction, Marla. Marla. It really looks like an I. Thank you, Marla. And, ooh, I'm so excited <laughs> that this person used this as a name. Thank you to Hubie Dubois. Ah, Hubie Halloween himself. I, I wonder. To, I wonder if that's Adam Sandler. Dude, that's what I was thinking <laughs> when I first saw that. I was like, "Gosh, please be Adam Sandler." But even even if you're not, yes. we we still love you. I think no shade to uh, the other people who've come in with some fun names. I think I think this he, is one one of the top. Yeah, yeah, Hubie Dubois. Thank you, Hubie. And uh, coming up last for today, we have Melissa Wenzel. Thank you so much, Melissa Wenzel. Appreciate all of you. Uh, thank you guys for listening and uh, being our wonderful patrons. I also have a pro tip to add before we get started. Someone reached out after our Hello October 2023 episode and suggested if you're looking for a clean, accessible bathroom to use throughout the day, just visit the PEM mm -hmm. because you can visit all day. Once you have that mm -hmm. little tab thing, your entry ticket, you can actually go back and use the bathroom. So, and come on, it's the PEM. They're, they're the nicest bathrooms you're going to get. Right. And then you get to go see the PEM. And you can sit down, have a little coffee, take a break. Yeah, they got a cafe in there. Such a smart idea. So thank you to our listeners who are helping contribute to making people's trips better and more enjoyable. Oh, and last thing, did want to do a slight apology. Just wanted to clear things up. We had a conversation a couple episodes ago about the the clown guy on yes. Essex Street, and uh, it ruffled some feathers, <laughs> which, I mean, the whole thing has been Ruff, ruffling. Yeah, yeah. It's small-town politics, which is why I wanted to chat about it on the podcast, because that's the type of small town politics Salem has to deal with, which is just hilarious. Well, it's um, funny since since the post hit Reddit and then it hit Facebook and then everyone was back and forth. And I was speaking from a place of just passive awareness on on the whole situation. Uh, but it has it is like minor celebrity now because everyone read about it. 
everyone saw it and everyone's like, oh my God, that's right? the guy. And I'm actually kind of, I'm, I'm very happy for him um, because it, we didn't want to reveal the identity by any means, but it is a local. He's a Salem, mm-hmm. trusted Salem local, mm-hmm. good guy, mm-hmm. fellow podcaster. Yep. So um, shout out to him. Keep doing what you're doing. And I guess the character is from a, a video game, which I was told as well. Yes. Was it a video game or a, is it a movie? I thought it was a think, movie. I think it's a... I think I read somewhere that it was a movie that people were like wickedly disturbed by. But either way, it is a character. Oh, okay. No, sorry. It is a movie. Art the Clown. Yes. From the movie Terrifier. Which um, I someone told me like people were vomiting when watching that movie because it's so gross. Well, <laughs> well I mean, if, if that is any, any indication. But uh, shout out to, to him. And I think we're gonna see him on sunday yes we are yeah yeah so. and i think there i think there will be a collaboration in the future at some point as oh, well okay i'm down for that definitely all right shall we dive into murder again yes can i can i preemptively uh, uh add something to my episode oh but of course okay and if you haven't already listened go back and check out jeffrey's interpretation of the boston strangler specifically with an emphasis on the crime that was committed here in salem yes so uh as i mentioned last week last episode uh there was a whole lot of press revolving around the strangler um and I mentioned some of the other names that he'd gone by and some of the different titles. So everyone, as with like any, 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 anything like this that comes out, everyone's always looking for the name that's going to stick. Right. Right. That, like, you know, really. The, the, the one that then is the one that everyone uses. And no one knows which one that is until it, until it happens. And then it happens. So all the papers are publishing different names, different titles, and what to call this guy and everything else. And it's actually uh, in 1963, two investigative reporters from Record American, Jean Cole and Loretta McLaughlin, so two women. Ooh, love it. Like, badass reporting investigative journalism in 1963, when, of course, A, investigative journalism by women was... It was more of a man's job, as were most jobs. And... Dealing with the police. Right. Also, not a women's woman's job. Yep. Uh, so you have the, these two women who are just like going hard and, you know, plowing their way through this. And and there's some reports uh, that they're like the ones who like talk to medical examiners and they're doing like, so there's these women like behind the scenes doing all this report and they write a four part series about him and they call him the Boston Strangler. And that's where the first Boston Strangler name yep. comes in. Yep, these two women, Jean Cole and Loretta McLaughlin. Wow. So they are the ones who get the credit for for naming him. Thank you for adding that in. Yeah. <laughs> and, and sorry, say when when was that name published? 63. 63. And by the time uh, that his confession comes out and all that, Boston Strangler was it. So thank you to those two women. Thank you. Yeah. Very Pioneers cool. in, in investigative journalism. So there we go. Oh, and before we get started on my case, I forgot to mention during yours as well, uh, it kind of ties in a weird way back to the Martha Brailsford case. Do you remember all the way back last year, mm-hmm. well, at the beginning of this year, when we were talking about Martha Brailsford and the main investigator, Detective Prisnuski, yeah, yeah. 
he was a young boy when that Lafayette murder happened. And he remembers in the beginning of that book that he wrote, or, uh-huh. or sorry, he didn't write the book, um, but he's quoted in the beginning. Oh, and the, the murder on the... Murder on the Water? Yes. I think that's what it's called. Gosh, we've done so much, it's hard to remember. <laughs> but it talks about him being a young boy and seeing the the crime scene, like not the actual inside the apartment, but he remembers all the police cars being outside the apartment building and just the frenzy and the fear surrounding it. And it made an impact on him. And it was one of the first moments he realized that he wanted to work in law enforcement. And then of course he ends up going on to solve the Martha Brailsford case decades later. But I just thought it was super cool, like full circle that you covered that story. I think we got to interview him. Oh, for sure we got to interview him. We, we are also seeing him Sunday. I know. I'm excited. Um, so I'm excited it, to meet him official, yeah. officially. He's going to probably think I'm weird <laughs> because I'm going to bring like, up a case from the you 90s. You are aware of and inspired to uh, work in law enforcement because of the Boston Strangler. He is the uh, the detective in the Martha Brailsford murder. Uh, he then is also the coordinator for uh, Hocus Pocus when they were coming into town. Oh, as like the representative on the force? Yeah, like yeah. So helping. in 93 wow. to deal with all of the sets and actors and I would whatever. I love to hear so about that. he was doing that. And then I think he, he doesn't, uh, and then he retires and now he's a city councilor. So I think. What a life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely sit down and chat with him. But enough of that. You've got your cider. I've got my cider. I'm drinking my Sarah cider from uh, Far From the Tree. I've oh, got a... Quite fitting. Ectoplasm. All right, Jeff, are you ready? I... No. O- only because, like, you are chomping at the bit. <laughs> okay, I was going to say, choose your words carefully there, bud. <laughs> you're like, you're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And, and I don't know anything about this. So like, I'm ready, but I'm like, what? What? what, can, is, what you yeah. have no expectations yeah. whatsoever. All right. So I have been waiting to tell you this story since the Salem Love Nuggets episode that we released on Valentine's Day this year. And I came across it just casually during the research. Um, there's a couple scant articles about it on like the New England blogs, okay. um, but few and far between. And it was too good and too detailed to throw into that episode. So I was like, it deserves its own. This story has everything. It has murder. It has an affair. It has uniformed men and a sensational trial that took place right here in Salem. Now, the only thing that would have made this story cooler is if we could have actually told it inside the courthouse, which we can tell them, I guess, now that that was the original plan. We wanted to do a virtual live show from inside the abandoned courthouse that... Mothballed. Mothballed. What does that mean? Uh, It has... um, Well, it's no longer abandoned. Right, but it was never abandoned. Okay. Mothballed. Well, we described it as such in it's that sealed. episode. Yeah. So mothballed is like sealed, closed, but still like intact. Abandoned okay. is like neglected. It's falling apart. So they basically like 
zipped it, sealed it, locked the doors, and we're like, okay, we're going to come back and deal with this at a later point. Okay. So, well, we were going to do yeah. this recording inside this mothballed building, which I was so excited for because this person is tried for a murder in that building. Do you know which courtroom? No, but I bet I could find out. Okay. And I want to go inside at some point. Okay. So. Because I think there was three. Three rooms. Well, three we got a 33.3% yeah. chance. <laughs> so today, I am telling you the story of the smiling widow and the kiss and tell cop. I, isn't that something we're not supposed to do? I guess you can do. Kiss and tell? Yeah. <laughs> And smile as a widow. <laughs> well, I, mm, yeah. <laughs> so we're heading all the way back to 1933 on February 17th. So just a few days after Valentine's Day, a door-to-door saleswoman by the name of Nellie Ayers found herself peddling fudge in Peabody, Massachusetts. So this does take place in Peabody. But it is tried in Salem, and it's just over, like, the Peabody line. So the house itself is very close to here. She knocked on the door of the Costello home, where Jesse Costello and her husband, William, and their children resided. It was a typical Friday. Two of the kids were home. One was at school, and their routine housekeeper was doing some cleaning at the residence. Mrs. Costello answered the door. And after agreeing to buy some fudge, left Nellie to retrieve her purse. Moments later, Jesse's screams filled the house. My husband is dead. My husband is dead. William was found lying in the upstairs hallway. He was a captain in the Peabody Fire Department, a devoted husband, and a loving father of four. The police were called, and Nellie Ayers left with her fudge. So, dead husband found upstairs in a typical Peabody home by his wife. What are you thinking? You have a thought. You lo- you have a thinking <laughs> face right now. I, so, a I'm I'm still vaguely stuck on like the the peddling fudge woman. We're in the 30s. I know, I know. And then, like in my mind, I was thinking, I was this like, is when well, you guess- get milk delivered to your door, right? To be fair, my aunt in England was getting milk delivered. Uh, you can get milk delivered here. Oh my gosh, you can get milk delivered here. I think it's coming back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, weren't we talking about this with uh, uh, Eric Angelica at um, from Oddmeter? Yes. Like a year and a half. I think, Their oh, milk, yeah, yeah, yeah. It comes in the glass bottles, and I think they get it delivered. And there's there's probably a local like um, farm, farm to re- table stand where you can bring back recyclable bottles yeah, and fill it up. Yeah. yeah. So like it's, it's coming back. Okay. But remember, but, we're back in the 30s for this. So I and, and then I sort of thought, I was like, well, I guess it's sort of the same thing today. We just get all these salesmen through targeted Instagram ads. <laughs> They're not coming to our door. They're just coming straight into our bedroom. And it's not homemade fudge <laughs> either. I guarantee you, you could get homemade fudge. Actually, you're right. You could get anything you want on the internet. <laughs> but but then, so, okay, so she... So, yeah. Can't, so, uh, I feel like we've got, like, a budding alibi here because the fudge woman was there. Right. Okay. There's a lot of people around. There's a, a cleaning lady in yes, the basement. Yeah. The two children, uh, d- they don't detail really where the children are at at this point, but they're young. Like, six and three, if I remember correctly, somewhere around there. So, very young children before school age. But, yeah, there's a lot of people when this man is found dead. And captain in the fire department from all accounts was a really good guy so who were jesse and william costello 
Jesse Fife was born in 1902 in Yonkers, New York. Oh, her that's where pa- our mom's from. Oh, really? Oh. Pretty much. Well, she'll enjoy this then. Well, well maybe not. <laughs> in, her parents had emigrated from Scotland and from Yonkers. The family moved to Peabody, Massachusetts when Jesse was just a young girl. She was known to be a bit of a strong-willed child and teenager, didn't care much for authority or school. Her father was known to be a strict disciplinarian, but, I mean, that's pretty typical of the time. Uh, But rather than cowering, Jessie liked to challenge him. So she's still a little bit of a spitfire. She was described as clever with a good sense of humor. She was a hard worker as well. Uh, Her first job was working at a bakery, and then she worked her way up to saleswoman. Uh, She got a job selling corsets. And then in 1919, she began selling poppies on the street to raise money for disabled veterans returning from war. So, yeah, we're back even further. World War I time. This is where she met her future husband, William J. Costello. So he was seven years her senior, a World War I veteran, and from all accounts, a very quiet man, one that preferred a book to a party, so a little different than Jesse. Uh, he was also a very reserved and devout Christian. They married in 1923 and had four children in quick succession, and sadly, one of the children died at just 16 months old. So this really kind of changed Jessie's life. She went from, this is like flapper time, right? The 20s. Like she went from dances and fundraisers and social events to becoming a stay-at-home mother and a wife. And just quick math, she is 30 at the time of the murder and he was like 38. Okay. The family lived at 21 Fay Avenue in Peabody. Fay Avenue. Fay Avenue. So it's very close to like the downtown main strip. Like I said, very close to like Harmony Grove Cemetery. I was going to say, that's by Black Vale and and everything else down there. Yeah, it's not far from Salem at all. Um, And yes, it does still stand, if anyone's wondering. And I can't help but wonder if the people that live there know about the history. Well, they they can't possibly. I mean, they might. They probably don't. But like in your house, in my house, both from the mid eighteen hundreds, yeah, there's maybe not murders, but there have been. I'm sure there's been deaths, loads. but like this is like recent, yeah, and yeah. this is murder, murder, murder. Um, but it doesn't look like murder at first. So when police arrived at the Costello home on February seventeenth, Jesse was hysterical. An initial look at Mr. Costello's body revealed no visible injuries, no evidence of foul play. She claimed heart disease was probably the culprit. He had been sick, she said. Stomach pains he had been feeling that morning. Um, The day prior to his collapse, he had suffered a terrible bout of indigestion, according to her. And, and what she believed was a heart attack. So, I don't know about you, but... um. I don't think she's a doctor or anything. <laughs> heart attack would be a little jarring. Well, you can you can also have minor heart attacks. True. Um, and I guess they also leave like a like a marker. I don't know how this works. Um, and <laughs> if my father's listening, just can, remember we're in the thirties. Yeah, yeah. Um, but today you can learn that someone's had like you've had like multiple minor heart attacks, mm-hmm. um, which aren't going to do. A lot, so it doesn't. A heart attack isn't necessarily like pff, done and out. Which I don't. 
I don't definitely don't disagree with, but yeah. Jesse is not Think, thinks that she he might. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's saying like we 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 kind of do that today, and you're like, oh well, maybe they. Yeah, agree. Yeah, so she's like looking back on. She's like, you know, he wasn't feeling well. Yeah. This is probably this was a sign yeah. of what was to come that morning. So the, because obviously there's no evidence of foul play. It, things move quickly. The funeral was set for that Sunday, just two days later, because this happened on a Friday. Police had their suspicions, though, because according to friends of the captain, colleagues at the firehouse, he was in good health. He hadn't ever missed a day of work, and he was just at the wake of a friend the night before. He had come home at like 2 a.m., and everyone that was at that wake with him said he was just fine, was in good spirits, nothing was out of sort. So... On the day of William's funeral, as his body was about to be lowered into its final resting place, authorities arrived at St. Mary's Cemetery. And St. Mary's. That is where, yeah. Yeah, and don't, didn't you have someone that was buried there? Yeah, the woman who was killed on Lafayette Street. Uh, by the Boston, well, not by the Boston Strangler, yeah. by the Boston Strangler copycat, as we have now. Evelyn. Yes, yes. yes. So, and St. Mary's, the one that has all like the broken headstones yes. that we love. So authorities arrive, they took the body, they removed it to an undertaker's parlor so an autopsy could be performed. And Harvard pathologist, Dr. Stephen Rooney, found some anomalies in Costello's internal organs. They must be examined microscopically and chemically, he said. Tests revealed a very alarming substance. Want to give a guess as to what, Jeffrey? Arsenic. No. Damn. Uh, mercury? No. This is fun. <laughs> ergot. Er ergot. No, no. I'm uh, kidding. <laughs> laudanum? No. Do I get a hint? Um, it's intense. And just think about the, the era. I feel like this is very reminiscent of the era. Belladonna? Cyanide. Oh, cyan oh cyanide. Oh, I missed like the big one. Of course, obviously, it's cyanide. Cyanide of potassium, to be exact, oh. which is one of the most lethal poisons known to man. So it appears in this form in a powdery white, mm -hmm. uh, kind of like granule substance, uh, like sugar or salt. And a lethal dose is minuscule, between 100 and 200 milligrams. And it works very quickly, can kill someone in just a few moments. That's why and you have the fake teeth. Yeah, like, oh, God, that's so freaky. It's so weird to think about. Yeah, when I th read this, I instantly thought back to, like, World War II, yeah, like, Hitler oh, like, and his like, suicide pact with all those people. James Bond movies where you bite down the tooth and crack the cyanide pill and you're dead in seconds. So they can't get any information out of the you. Mouth and like, oh, he took cyanide. I <laughs> oh, will never learn who the killer is. Exactly. Um, so it works really, really quickly. It rids your body's ability to use oxygen, which just sounds, I mean, it's going to be over quick, but just sounds so brutal, like excruciating. And for those who are curious, because I was, and I felt very weird looking up this information on my computer. <laughs> how, how much cyanide does it take to right? kill someone? <laughs> I was like, gosh, I hope no one's looking. Hydrogen cyanide was first isolated from Prussian blue dye in 1786 and was extracted from almonds around 1800. Yes, cyanide is in almonds. Yes. So then oh, at, 
and, so I, and apple seeds. I did not know that. I did not see that. But when I read the almond thing, I was like, I like almonds. Like, am I risking my life here? So then I went down this rabbit hole. How many almonds does it take to kill you? You were eating almonds the other night. Yeah. Those were not cyanide almonds. Okay, though. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and it's, it's a specific type of almond. Uh, it has to be raw, bitter almonds. Those are the ones that you can literally just eat 50 of them and you're dead. Six to 10, it's going to cause serious illness. And just like, you know how um, some people taste soap when they eat cilantro? Oh, yes, yes. Or some people have that gene that smells, makes your pee smell after you eat asparagus. Asparagus, yeah. So there is another one that I think it said 20% of people can smell the almond smell that accompanies cyanide even after it's extracted. So Okay, I think I've heard that. If you ever smell almonds... <laughs> Be, be careful. And and toast before you have a heart attack? Yes. Or no, it's stroke. Stroke. It's stroke. It's a stroke. Sorry. Yep. Burning so, burning toast. Sometimes uh giving the tours in, in Higginson Square, right? Like yeah. uh Rockefellers is either toasting bread, you know, because they have the kitchen windows open. Yeah. And like so every once in a while. Do you make a joke? Well, I have to ask. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like you're with like 30 people. Like anyone else smell toast? And everyone like raises their hand. You're like, okay, cool, we're safe. Because <laughs> if no one else raises their is hand. Is that where you leave it though? No, no, no. Okay, good. Because mo- no, I feel like that's not a super common thing I, I think to most, know. Most, I think most people know. And people would be really confused. No, I think generally, I was like, okay, everyone else smell toast? Everyone's like, yeah, like, okay, we're all safe. We're all good. And I, most people get it, yeah. But anyway, cyanide. Yeah, cyanide. So news of this case spread very rapidly. I think I mentioned in your episode on the Boston Strangler that the papers play a big role mm-hmm. in my story. It was sensational in less than a week the boston globe was already dedicating a portion of it to their front page here's one of the first headlines feels costello slain or suicide police chief bases claim on pathologist report peabody fire captain's widow insists his heart failed case is expected to reach climax sometime today Oh, how wrong that last line could have been. Like they were expecting to solve it. They expected it to be very quick, like to figure out, you know, what happened. They thought it was going to be a simple open and shut case. And so there were two, there were a couple theories. Was it murder Mm -hmm. or was it suicide? So in this February 25th article, the police chief, Edward Pierce, was quoted as a saying, I am confident that we will know something very definite about the cause of Captain Costello's death. I am satisfied now that he was murdered or ended his own life. That is about all I can say tonight. So because there were no burns on the mouth or the tongue, investigators believe that Mr. Costello consumed the poison by way of capsule. So, you know, you get empty capsules, throw some stuff in, it goes in. Once the stomach then dissolved that coating, the poison would have, quote, paralyzed the system and caused death within a few moments. So from this, they deduced two theories. One, that the fire captain took his own life. Apparently, he had attended a film play, as they called it, or a movie. Uh, And so this is... Might I say, this is all published in the newspaper. Like, everything I'm reading to you right now is being told in the Boston Globe and then picked up by other newspapers in the North 
East area. It eventually gets all over the country, but it reads like you are watching a drama on freaking Lifetime unfold. <laughs> so Is it, did, did you look? No, but I don't think so. But Lifetime, you need to make this into a movie. Oh, my gosh, they definitely do. So apparently he had gone to a movie before his death a couple days before. It was called Payment Deferred, and it featured a cyanide bottle in connection with a murder. But theater manager Albert Dow insisted that the film in no way educated viewers on the handling of cyanide potassium. The suicide, this suicide theory also shocked his friends and family. They insisted he was a very religious man, like he would never even consider that. And he was, quote, the sole devotion to his home and his children. He was a family man. He was an all-around family man devoted to his career, devoted to his home. The other theory, the more likely theory in the minds of investigators, he was tricked into taking a capsule thinking it was an actual remedy. You know, he takes a couple pills at yeah, night. Yeah, you got a yeah. headache, you got a, yeah. Exactly. So Jesse obviously is brought in for questioning. Investigators had found two poisons in the Costello home, potassium cyanide and oxalic acid. So literally the stuff that was found in William's sure. stomach and his organs in general. I guess it was it was a hefty dose, both of which are lethal on their own, but a mixture would be even more so. Fumes alone would kill someone. And when the authorities asked Jesse, do you have any poisons in the house? No, was her reply. They produced a receipt from Curtis Drugstore in Peabody for a quarter pound of cyanide potassium and a small amount of oxalic acid. It was dated February 16th, literally the day before William's death. Her response... Well, I didn't regard those as poison as I had them for cleaning purposes. You could just buy cyanide? So, yeah, isn't that crazy? You I could mean, go buy, she bought a quarter pound of cyanide at the drugstore. Well, I mean, I guess like in the 1800s, you could just go buy opium, cocaine, and morphine. So. True. Yeah, now you get carded for getting like spray paint. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> like you, you, you need some, some NyQuil and they're like, do you have an ID? And you're like... Remember when we kept saying in um, the Haunted Happenings history episode, bring it back. Bring, don't bring this back. Don't, <laughs> don't bring the cyanide over the counter back. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that paste that I just mentioned that you could mix these two together, that was actually known as a way to clean things. So it was being sold over the counter because it was used for cleaning purposes. Oh, like... um, And that's what Jessie claimed. She's like, I... I had them for cleaning purposes. Is that cleaning powder? B B B B B B. Borax. 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 Like yeah, probably. Probably similar. Yeah, but okay. I don't think borax will kill you. Right, but you know. <laughs> yeah, but sim. Yeah, exactly. Like if, if it's gonna dissolve your stomach lining, it's gonna get rid of the grease on your pants. <laughs> exactly. It's a great. Uh, it's a great catchphrase. <laughs> So cyanide for every home in America. Oh my gosh. So she claimed she had purchased them on the advice of a neighbor who said that they would produce a very sufficient solution for cleaning the copper boiler in the basement. So not, not the pans or whatever you just said, but uh, the copper boiler. So investigators 
when they discovered the chemicals, they had found a pasty mixture of the two in a tin can. And after testing the boiler, it did show signs of the poisonous compound. What's more, though, William was with her when she purchased the materials. He had driven with her to the drugstore the night before. According to Jesse, she had asked her husband to mix the chemicals when he returned home with his, from his friend's wake so that she could get some cleaning done the next day. Everything seems okay so far? Now, with this discovery of cyanide in William's body, obviously Jesse couldn't really adhere to the idea that the cause of death was heart disease or indigestion. So she now is insisting that either William chose to take his own life or that he consumed the poison accidentally. And during the third round of questioning, Jesse seems to have buckled a little bit under the pressure. She had what was described by her doctor and lawyer as a, quote, nervous breakdown. And her doctor told police to give her some time to recover before any further investigation. He basically barred her from being questioned, which I don't know. Can that happen today? Is that a thing? Mm. I feel like if this this is obviously in the 30s, you know, probably a thing. Like if you're not of sound mind. Yeah. So while Jesse was, quote, recovering, investigators gathered statements from family, friends, neighbors. They also speculated that they might find evidence in the body of Jesse and William's 16-month-old son who had died three years prior to his father's death. So remember, they had four children in quick, quick succession after getting married, and then they had lost one of them at a young age. Nope, nope, nope. What, nope. What? I don't like that. Keep what, going. What? <laughs> so William Costello Jr., he had died February 3rd, 1930. He was found unresponsive in his crib. Medical examiner S. Chase Tucker observed that the child had an enlarged thymus gland and strangulation was actually noted as the official cause of death, which I thought, like, I don't know if... I wonder if they didn't mean like strangulation, like phys, like like homicides, right? I think they meant strangulation, like he, like his airways okay, were that, cut off. Yeah. Because if it was obviously strangulation, someone would have been indicted for it. Like there would have been more of an investigation, I think, right? I think you're probably that makes sense. Yeah, but still a suspicious death, right? But you know, we have was it called SIDS? You know, stuff can right, happen right. when a child is of that age. Um, so no clear cause of uh death there so investigators are wondering perhaps the two are connected maybe they'll find traces of the same substance in william jr's body so as if the case wasn't already catching the eyes and ears of the press and everyone for that matter they decided to exhume the body of this baby but nothing could be retrieved the child's body was not embalmed and no tests could be conducted so we already have, like, it's already sensational. You got a suspected wife of killing her husband. You have a funeral that was nearly stopped in the middle of it, it as they grab his body and like, no, you're not putting him in the ground. And then they dig up their infant child. So although William Jr.'s body could not offer any clues, investigators were pretty certain that Jesse Costello killed her husband. How do you feel about it? Do you think yes or no? You were very investigative during your Boston Strangler <laughs> research, so. So I, I, I think 
from what you've said so far and how cyanide works um and to my understanding of it which is you know mostly just from the movies so i don't know how true that is he couldn't have just put it in his mouth like the actual substance right right because that would have killed him nearly instantly right so he would have had to swallow it as you said in pill form mm mm-hmm. mhm I mean, could go either way. No, you, you either if she must have given it. Why would he? Is he taking regular pills? I don't. But you're more you're leaning towards Jesse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, only because of, of the pill idea. So he couldn't have taken it himself. Unless he himself put it into a, a pill. Right. And took it to kill himself. But then again, the yeah. But why it does exactly it doesn't match up with his normal behavior yeah and especially since why would you if you're gonna kill yourself why would you put in a pill if you could just put a spoonful in your mouth and be dead in 10 seconds that's true right you're i didn't like, even think about it that way yeah you're like well excuse me you're like i'm off i'm done let me go to the meticulous process of putting this is not gonna hurt anymore or less and then you're sitting there waiting for it to happen yeah you're like it's that's gonna horrible. happen now it's gonna happen right <laughs> yeah so yep 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 the only other answer would that she put it in a pill for another purpose which I don't know what that would be. And he accidentally took it. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Which, why would she do that? So, yep. And so it's not looking good for Jesse. So on March 17th, exactly one month after William Costello's death. Is that St. Patrick's Day? Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah, nice. <laughs> good catch. The district attorney presented evidence to an Essex County grand jury. They responded with a single indictment. Jesse Costello was charged with the murder of her husband. She was arrested at her home just 15 minutes later and brought to Salem County Jail, reportedly smiling all the way. So, yeah, Salem County Jail. We're back in jail. The same jail that the Boston Strangler did not spend time in as we talked about on the recent episode but it is where those other people died we talked about the floor collapsing yeah oh way back in our howard street cemetery yep. clip and in the murder of captain white yep Ooh. that is where the crown shield where crown shield hanged himself and the courtyard is where the nat brothers killed themselves so adding to the history or got hanged hanged sorry yes yeah, yeah. my apologies uh, yeah but yes. So much layered history in that place. Ties to a lot of our stories. Luxury condos. Luxury condos. And again, I want to know who is living where Jesse stayed. Like, that's so cool to think about. Cool. I don't know if cool is the right word, but it's like weird, right? Like transporting yourself back into that moment. Okay. She's arrested. She's smiling. So we got the smiling widow part. We got the smiling widow part. So March 18th, front page, Boston Globe featured a very large photo of this smiling Jesse Costello. So she's making the front page within a month. Do you have it? Of course I do, Jeffrey. I have so many things to show you. (laughs) So this appeared on the front page, Boston Daily Globe, Saturday morning. This is what people would have seen when they opened it up. Mrs. Costello is arrested in Peabody Poison Death. (laughs) Well then, she looks very typical. Typical 30s. Okay. Can you describe her for them? It's very typical, as you said. I mean, literally, like from the hair to the fur jacket to the lipstick to the uh, haircut. I said the haircut. She Uh, had a hat on. Yeah. Yeah, just straight out of a 30s anything. So the headline continued. 
indicted for murder of fire captain. Widow smiles and jests on leaving home in custody, but balks at entering her cell. So she was resistant at first. Obviously, no one wants to go to jail. And she's like a housewife, right? There's a quite of a quite a little turn here. She seemed to do pretty okay while in jail. The woman's block had about a dozen inmates, and she reportedly got along with those folks, as well as the jailers, the, the matron. Um, and her father visited pretty frequently and would bring her food and personal items. And she definitely started to develop a bit of a fan base at this point. I mean, again, this is the 30s. People are opening up these newspapers and they're glued to them. This is their entertainment. And her picture is now going to start popping up all the time. The Globe reported that she was receiving 10 letters a day from people, quote, encouraging her to expect an acquittal. So people were on her side. She also received, at one point, a bouquet of lilies. Very nice. People sent money as well. $50 from an anonymous donor. Well, um, damn. I know, right? 50 bucks and 33 uh, The letter was just signed, a mother. So she's getting a lot of, she's definitely going to get a lot of male sympathy just because she is an attractive woman. Right. But she's also getting a lot of female sympathy as well, which is interesting is there any indication that he was abusive yeah i knew you're gonna yeah so i that's what my thought was when i saw that there were so many women sympathizers that this is an era where women are forced into being housewives they're forced into having children and oftentimes in the home there is there are abusive situations and you couldn't get out back then. Like you could still legally rape your wife. So I'm thinking that a lot of women probably from the outside looking in thought, you know, more power to her, even if she did kill her husband, maybe he deserved it. That's probably what they were thinking. Is there any record? Not that I can see. I think honestly, it's a, it's a real shame because from all accounts and from everything I read, we don't know too much about sure. William, but he was a good guy. Okay. And he was a good father, a good husband, devoted to his community, to his job. He was a fireman, yeah. you know? So, and again, these, <laughs> reading these clippings, I started to feel like I was reading like tabloids because it just it just keeps ramping up even more. And during this time while she's waiting in jail for trial to start, because it's going to be keep getting delayed, they start like following every move. They recorded her trip to the dentist because she had to go get some dental work done. So like it was all detailed out in an article. At one point, the papers requested updated portraits. So they all came to the jail. Um, She didn't want to use the jail as a backdrop. So she requested to be allowed off the grounds. She wanted to be photographed in a more natural setting, somewhere with trees and grass and flowers. Um, Her request was denied. (laughs) So uh, she settled for the jail's courtyard, which Again, weird. The same courtyard that the Knapp brothers were hanged in. Yes. Well, so during this... A uh, hundred years earlier. What year is it? 33. Ah, 1930. 100, hey, 1830. 103 years later. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So cool, though. The weird layers of history. I love Salem so much. So this is like her second round of portraits and like big photos taken in relation to the case. And her attorney, Mr. O'Brien, had something to say to kind of caution her. He warned her not to smile. He said, quote, 
They made you seem cold-blooded when you smiled the time you were arrested. Don't smile now. But, the Globe reported, Mrs. Costello couldn't resist smiling. I love it. I mean, obviously it's a murder and it's sad, but like the sensational nature of this, it's got me captivated. I can't deny it. It's so weird. I I feel like, how could you not be glued to this story back in the 30s? That really speaks to some psychopathic tendencies, like a lack of regret. Lack of remorse. Remorse. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Or also, you could say, too, she's like playing the card. She knows how to she knows how to play the game. She knows how to play the people. Which is still narcissistic and, you know, all those other... Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Manipulative and, and et cetera. So either way, it's it's... Okay, keep going. Scary. So do you want to see these oh, photos? Oh, second picture. Yes, yes. Second pictures. So she's featured on, again, the front page of the Boston Globe. Under her photo, it reads, Mrs. Jessie B. Costello, the trial will prove me innocent. Oh, wow. Slightly more. Um, uh, weather's a little better outside. She's a little dressed. She's not dressed down, but in no big fur wool coat. No, she's actually in the same dress that she wore when she was arrested. Obviously, she had the coat on because okay, they were okay, transporting. Yeah, yeah. But it's noted in the articles that when the reporters first arrived, she started to come down the stairs in like a pink dress, not really well put together. And as soon as she saw them, she went back up, changed back into her black attire put on red lipstick and kind of like cleaned herself up a bit. So she definitely, she was. Yeah. Yeah. There was purpose behind all of these moves she was making. Also seen in these headlines, officials refused to offer slain motive. So they wanted to keep this part quiet until trial. So like, why did, if, if she did kill her husband, why was she just motive is one of the, driving factors within any of these conversations right and what else i can't remember but murder weapon right like those are like the if you don't have some of these things then it doesn't make sense right you need to have a motive if you're gonna yeah get her yeah in trial but they wanted to keep this part quiet however that wouldn't be easy obviously the press was all over the story Again, she is a young, attractive woman, a mother, charity worker, wife to a fire captain, accused of killing her husband. The scandal that this carried, although I'm sure we would probably see a bit of spotlight on a case like this today, like it's your it's your typical femme fatale stereotype, right? Sure. Like if you had, we'll talk about pretty p- privilege by the end of this, but if uh, she didn't look the way that she did or if it wasn't, it didn't play out the same way that it did, you know, she wouldn't be getting this attention. So that motive that police were keeping in their back pocket, it was only going to draw further attention to this case. Enter Edward J. McMahon. Police officer. A Peabody police officer and Jesse's secret lover. Okay, so... This entire time, as you introduced the story, I'm like, okay, where does the second, where does the shoe drop? The the other uniformed man? Yeah, so <laughs> I'm sitting here being like, okay, okay, okay. And just, just trying to go off the base of what you told me, but still knowing that there is 
the kissing cop and the smiling widow. And I'm like, okay, what's the fucking kissing cop? Sorry. <laughs> what's the kissing cop? Right? Like kiss where's yep. Okay. So here we go. Yeah. That's, that's sort of what I figured. Ed, Edward McMahon. So he was 26, a little younger than Jesse, also married and had a couple kids, very young kids, six months and a year and a half. And Ed, Edward, was very forthcoming about his relationship with Jesse, which I mean, he has to be. He's, she's being investigated by the Peabody police and he is a, a reserve Peabody police officer. So that's, they, that's not a good look. Not a good look at all. Can you imagine the heat that he got? Um. <laughs> the conversation he walks into his chief's office and he's like, okay. I got some stuff to tell you. So you know the woman that we just arrested for killing her husband? Uh, um, you should probably know that we're having an affair. Just uh, And it gets explicit. Okay. <laughs> so they had met on Lowell Street in Peabody. <laughs> I like <laughs> On lo- and I was like online. Oh, oh. <laughs> on Lowell Street okay. in Peabody, which I think isn't that the street that everyone gets off at accidentally when they come to yeah, Salem. Yeah. Don't don't get off at Lowell. It's just gonna take you longer. <laughs> and they had met just that previous November, so they hadn't known each other long. He told investigators of their affair in pretty great detail. And he even said that Jesse requested that he leave his wife so that they could go start a new life together. He implied that she felt trapped in her housewife role and was looking for a way out with him. So, looks like we got motive. I mean, sure, but okay. Fine, whatever. But it's all. But it's also just an affair. Just because she had an affair doesn't mean she killed her husband. No, 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 no. What, what I'm but, saying is, is he wasn't a, uh, um, I don't know, eight, 1933. He, he wasn't a, a, whatever, an adventurer, right? Like he's he's the exact same as her husband. You think Ed was very similar to William? Yeah. Oh, I thought I see. I figured he might feel like a little bit. William was older than Jesse. Right, right. But he's a little younger. He's still like not the same job, but still, you know, similar. Similar job, similar family lifestyle. Uh, yes, the age difference is a little li- younger, but he's not like some single cavalier. True. You know, like run away with me. There's nowhere for him to run. He's got kids and a wife and a job as well. It's like, what did she expect was actually going to happen? Like, yeah. you can't. Yeah. It's if, not going to happen. If he was like a. And I, I'm just totally blanking on what that person, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know. Like a movie star. You're right. Like a movie <laughs> star came in and she had an affair or, you know, a, a, a businessman. Or or like maybe a, he was, I mean, maybe he was a little bit more adventurous. Maybe, and maybe. Exciting. Yeah. Or maybe Jesse was also just bored in her marriage. Yeah. So what was Jesse's response to all of this? A tissue of lies, she said. And this line is plastered once again on the Boston Globe front page. A tissue of lies. March 22nd, 1933. So we are still months out from the actual trial. People already know about this affair. Like, according to Jesse, it didn't happen. According to this cop, it did. And it gives reason for murder. So after months of gossip and delays, 
the trial of Mrs. Jesse Costello finally began on Monday, July 17th, 1933, and was held at Salem Superior Court. Just a stone's throw from where we're sitting. And boy, again, was this trial sensational. The story had been featured in headlines all over the New England area at this point. And before the trial date was even set, a woman phoned into the district attorney's office asking to reserve two seats in the courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> His response was, this is not a box office. I was going to be like, yes, my box seats, please. <laughs> he said, the trial of Mrs. Costello will in no sense be a theatrical production. But that's exactly what it turned out to be. So only 75 spectators were allowed inside the courtroom each day. And people started lingering around the courthouse at 6 a.m. on that first morning. It's like Black Friday. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the trial wouldn't start until 9.30. And it was mostly women, but they did have some male admirers among them. Another crowd formed at the Salem jail all hoping to catch a glimpse of the, quote, smiling widow, as she was now known. And the crowds that had massed, like, there are photographs of this. It's amazing. Hold on, I'm going to pull some up for you here. This is <laughs> this is minimal crowds. Uh, like, this is not... Like October. Oh, my gosh. It got... It <laughs> did... It did. They, thousands of people. Thousands of people. They had to call in state troopers to help uh, calm and keep order. And Jessie ate this up. She would linger outside the courthouse and pose for photos as long as the bailiff would allow. Same thing at the jail whenever she'd be transferred back and forth. What? She walk? No, 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 no. She was transferred. She was transferred in a sheriff's car. But at one point, that was swapped out for a limousine, as I read in one of the articles. She was brought there by limousine. So on that first day... An all-male jury was selected. I'm going to read you a quick clipping from that day. Salem, July 17th. Unruffled and smiling, Mrs. Jessie Burnett Costello fled out of the Salem courthouse and into the sheriff's car to go back to the prison for her luncheon at one o'clock today. A few minutes after, the 12 men who will try her case had left by the same door to go to the Hawthorne Hotel to telephone their families that for an indefinite period now, they will be hearing the evidence in what is expected to be the most dramatic murder trial in the History of Essex County. I find that hard to believe. Oh, are you gonna? <laughs> are you saying that Captain White's murder? <laughs> I mean, where's Black Dan? Ah, Black Dan, we need you for this one. I'm just saying. Uh, you're right. If if he was on the prosecution side in this, or oh, she wouldn't have stood a chance. Or he was a defense attorney. But he wasn't. Yeah, he was a defense attorney. Oh. But but for the Captain White murder, he, that was the like one of the only cases he ever prosecutes. He gotcha, yeah, yeah. gotcha. Also, like the witch trials. Just, I was thinking that too. I was just, like, that's a. Huh. I mean, it's not quite the same, but you know, sensational. He, I'm pretty sure this one doesn't have you know Ann Putnam Jr. <laughs> <laughs> or Giles Corey and his uh, turtles, right? So the trial lasted about five weeks, and over the course of those five weeks, the jury took quite the liking to Jesse. Four of them formed a quartet and sang her songs during recess. The jury. The jury. 
the jury. Okay, that might be like the most illegal thing <laughs> I've ever heard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You would think that they would have uh, swapped in some alternates at that point. Um, another asked if he could give her a box of chocolates. And the bailiff was even rumored to have given her roses. And again, press was all over it. One article noted that there were 41 reporters in the courtroom at one time. At this point, it is reaching all corners of the country. Pictures of Jesse plastered the front pages every other day. Also, like the cartoon uh, courtroom sketches, which I thoroughly enjoy. Yep. Not just pictures of Jesse, like anyone. Um, they called up neighbors to testify. They were on the front page. Of course, Ed, uh, her sure. her lover. You see his picture quite a few times. He's a handsome guy. Oh, and probably one of my favorites. One featured a bunch of headshots of Jesse, all with different hats she had wore that week in court. They focused so much on her physical appearance, every new outfit she wore. But then again, do, I, th- I feel like we see similar things today, like in major court trials. We just saw the. Uh... And oftentimes, when it comes to women in general, they're going to be like, you know, people are going to be paying attention to the physical appearance. So and exploiting it. The uh, she was actually exploiting it. Johnny Depp, Amber Heard. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Yeah, she kept wearing things. God, I can't remember what it was causing. Like quite the the stir. Was it because she was dressing like more like reserved? No, no, she was wearing and like don't quote me on this. I can't remember, but things that were like. Oh, she wore this sit like a like a brown suit jacket or you know like whatever it is. Yeah. On like a day on their first date or like oh. something like that, she would show up. Provocative is not not like nudity provocative, but like in clothes that everyone was like, "Oh my god!" Like we've seen them together, and With she this. was wearing that similar outfit. So like a very pointed, yeah, uh, decision, yeah, to, at to him. provoke, um, which was did not do her any favors. No. <laughs> But it definitely did uh, Jesse some favors. She was compared to the Mona Lisa at one point. Like there was a picture of her where she was giving like a soft smile. And they're like, oh, look at Jesse's Mona Lisa smile. And called a glamorous siren, among other things. So, so I, I can imagine the prosecution was probably feeling extremely frustrated. I can see the siren bit. Like, I mean, I mean the glamorous. If you're wearing different hats every day. Yeah, the the outfits, it was a show. It was a show for her. It was a show. And she, again, eating it all up. So I do think the prosecution was probably feeling frustrated. Obvious admiration that Jesse was garnering was going to sway the case. But they, they had evidence against her. District Attorney Hugh Craig opened by calling her vulgar and frivolous. He painted her as a deceitful wife and called into question her love towards her husband and her children even several people were called up to testify um, including the candy woman from the beginning Nellie Ayers she also got a huge headshot in the paper the Costello's housemaid as well who happened to be in the basement at the time of Mr. Costello's death and some friends particularly those who had accompanied him to that wake the night before his death Anyone ever bring up that the maid is a suspect? 
No. Okay. Um, I don't think so. She, the only other person that it seems gets the finger pointed at him in any capacity is the police officer, okay. Ed McMahon. Um, there is a theory as this plays out that maybe they were in on it together and maybe he helped her poison William. And honestly, I'm surprised that theory doesn't stick more, but I think he had a pretty sound alibi. And speaking of Ed, perhaps the biggest bombshell testimony of them all was from him. He would become known as the kiss and tell cop after he took the stand. So he had told investigators a pretty good amount about the affair he had with Jesse, but apparently that was nothing compared to the graphic detail that he gave in the courtroom. His testimony was so salacious, so vulgar, that the newspapers refused to print parts of it. I read that they refused to print any of it. That's not true. There are excerpts that you can find in the Globe. Um, I'm sure the Salem News also has some, but not the whole transcript. That whole transcript, however, was compiled into a 48-page red booklet and sold outside the courthouse. Man, that's a way to make money right there. Right? His testimony, because of how, about the affair in particular, was mm, just a little too spicy for this courtroom, for these papers. They decided to to put it in a little red book and sell it. And so everyone could hear the story of, and it was called The Kiss and Tell Cop. I'm going to pull up the picture of the little red book for you. God, getting one of those would be pretty cool. It's called uncensored testimony of the cop who kissed and told costello murder trial price 25 cents there we go yes uh i would love to get my hands on one of these but it is very difficult one was up for sale uh several years ago i found a facebook posting about it i couldn't see what how much it went for but probably thousands there are a couple physical copies floating around but they're few and far between cornell university has a copy a physical copy uh new york public library has one on microfilm that you can look at and harvard university has a copy and I went to see it. When did you do that? Because I couldn't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> I needed to know what was inside the red book. Um, months ago, I met okay. my I met my dad in Boston for for lunch. Oh and yeah, yeah. I went to to Harvard to see this book. In which, by the way, there are so many security hoops you got to jump through to get into those Harvard libraries. I forgot which one it is in particular. I'll link them in the show notes, but. Yeah, they check, like, you got to put your bag in a locker. You can't bring, like, certain things in. Thankfully, I was able to take pictures, so I have copies of all the testimony on my phone right now. No, I don't just look through it when I feel like it. Um, It's surprisingly, I was slightly disappointed. Okay. Uh, They brought the book out. The attendant, she, um, it was was obviously like an intern, and it comes out. You know, they wheel it out on this cart. They have you sit down. They bring you the materials. She's like, I am so intrigued by this uh, title here. I have never seen anything like it. And I was like, you should take a moment to read through. <laughs> um, but again, I, I was slightly disappointed. I was expecting like a pocket-sized book, like one uh-huh. that you could just like, you it's know. Probably... It's a half page. It's okay. a full half page. Not hot dog style, but hamburger style, uh, if you remember back to school. Sure. And it is read, and it's just a verbatim 
transcript of his questioning. And the way that the news has warned about his testimony, I expected it to be like I was reading a porno. Like I was, I was sitting down to read some smut here and um, it was not that. <laughs> I think like the worst we see is maybe the word intercourse, but it is detailed in the fact of like how, how many times they met, where they met. Uh, and it, it feels like a lifetime movie. We learn more about their first meeting. Apparently Ed was working traffic duty when Jesse rolled up in her car with another woman. She said to him, Hey, how would you like to be in here? So looks like uh, Jesse definitely had her eyes on him before he even knew who she was. Do we do we have any any evidence of any other affairs that she had with anyone, anyone else? else? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think there's any evidence of any other affairs. But hey, this was um, either this was like a first time situation, and she was so amped up about it. She's like, "Man, I gotta get rid of my husband. This yeah. is what I want." Or maybe she had been doing it for a while. From what I saw, there were no other affairs. Okay, then I I would lean towards none. If it's so, someone else would have come out. There would have been. Oh yeah, yeah. Someone probably would have come forward. Yeah, yeah. You're like, oh. Yeah, I was like, huh, she came up to me too. Yeah, and they they did it in a lot of places, lots of places, including his police cruiser. Well then. <clears throat> uh, but more oftentimes in her car, also in her house. Um, he had a, suffered appendicitis, and after getting out of the hospital, he needed a place to kind of like stay and recuperate. And so he actually stayed at the Costello's home. Like he knew her pretty well. He knew her husband. He knew her husband before he even knew Jesse. He knew of him at least because again, he's in law enforcement and William was a fire captain. So they, they kind of in a small town PD, same circles, right? So yeah, Ed, he, he admits to feeling bad about it as he should. I feel bad, especially for his wife, who would have had to, you know, endure as this is all playing out in the public eye. She says she has two young kids, right? Learns that her husband has been cheating on her with a suspected murderer. So the prosecutors thought they had a pretty sound case. Um, We have motive. Sure. Trying to escape, you know, home life and maybe run off with Mr. Edward uh, McMahon. And uh, what did you say at the beginning? It was motive. Weapon and body. Opportunity. Oppor- maybe. You said opportunity. And then is probable cause one of those things? We obviously are not detectives. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a surprise piece of evidence that investigators were holding on to, keeping in their back pocket for trial. They called up to testify one of the drugstore clerks in Peabody who had sold Miss Jesse capsules about six months prior to William's death. Empty capsules, about a dozen of them. Dun, dun, dun. What's more, capsules of the same type were found in William's stomach. Boom. That should be it, right? Yes. Yes. I mean, yes. Yes. That's like being like, yes, well, uh, and the defendant bought the exact same set of kitchen knives and one is missing, and it's the one we found in the body. In the body. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. And then you're like, well. It's like right there. It's boom. May- there. Maybe maybe they needed it for, for cutting steak or something. Maybe she was just looking to make some homemade vitamins. Yeah. Or homemade poison. But man. So there we go. She bought the capsules too. 
I don't even know. And the fact, the fact that the clerk remembered selling her the capsules, if that would have happened today, like you just go through self-checkout, buy yeah. some, ca- like how. But then there'd also be a record of it. True. There's cameras at that self-checkout. Yeah. <laughs> Make us look ugly. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. The defense stuck with the suicide theory, even though it was vehemently denounced by Williams' friends and family. They pointed to a revolver and five rounds of ammunition that was found in the captain's desk at the firehouse, as well as a book that contained information on cyanide. So they're like really going hard on this theory. They also honed in on the fact that William was in the car when Jesse picked up the chemicals from the drugstore. So like, surely she couldn't have ill intent if he was there. And they called into question Ed McMahon's version of events. I love this line. They said, quote, Although McMahon went far to place the scarlet letter on Jesse Costello's brow, there has been nothing said throughout all his testimony or any other testimony in this case to indicate murder. And that, Your Honor, is what she is being tried for. Jesse maintained throughout this entire thing that their relationship was simply spiritual, that no affair had ever transpired, and that everything that he has said was a lie. She makes a final plea. She does take the stand. Gentlemen, send me back to my children, she said to the jury. She professed that she she claimed that she was a loving wife. She loved her husband. She would never have hurt him. She just wanted to go home into her family. The jury deliberated for just 90 minutes. And keep in mind, this was the 30s, so death penalty was a very real possibility. Despite the obvious evidence against her, Jesse Costello was found not guilty. Jesus. And the courtroom erupted in cheers. Edmund Pearson, a journalist at the time, was quoted as saying, quote, the jury was as helpless as 12 rabbits under the influence of those glittering ophidian eyes. Now, before this verdict was read, Jesse had already received offers to do theater contracts as well as burlesque shows. Months of constant press coverage and countless front page photos had basically turned Jesse into a bit of a celebrity. And she ended up selling the rights to her story for $2,400. Which is... I usually do it, but I... You always do it. I know. I didn't do it this time. <laughs> 2400 in 1933. Maybe <clears throat> 250 uh, No, it's not It's not as much as when we're going all the way back to the 1700s. Uh, it's about... It's, it's over $56,000 today. Oh, okay. That seems so, low. Over 50000 Still, it's yeah. still a nice chunk of change just for selling your story. The burlesque companies came knocking again. With an even bigger offer, a contract worth $20,000. So there's your two fifty. Okay. She turned them down. She had her eyes set on the big screen. Jessie had her eyes set on New York City and Hollywood. She had done... So after this is over, she ends up doing interviews. Uh, they were even gearing up to do some screen tests. But the fame did fizzle pretty quickly. I suspect it was a, when I was reading this, I kind of got the same feeling that it was like when OJ Simpson was found innocent. And then people kind of took a moment to think, shoot, like he 
probably did actually do it. Uh-huh. And then, of course, he comes out with that book. Yeah. It was like, if I did it. Innocent. Yep. So her fame starts fizzling by, say, 1940 or so. And she tries to go back to the burlesque companies. They no longer wanted her. She had a speaking engagement up in Salisbury set. But town officials, once they realized that she was coming, they barred the event from taking place. They said, quote, public decency and public morals forbid commercializing such a tragic event. Fair. Which, again, that line, man, rings so true because we're talking about this story in Salem, Massachusetts. And uh, one could say that the witch trials are incredibly commercialized. So we can't forget as much as it is a entertaining story, just because it is so sensational, a woman did get away with murder and these children did lose their father and this community lost. Do you know what happened to the kids? Did you? Yeah. So they, they stay with Jesse. Okay. Um, they attend her funeral. So I'm assuming that there was, you know, some relationship still. Did she ever get back with a cop? No. Okay. And uh, one of their sons actually goes on to become the chief of Peabody Police. Oh. So maybe he was inspired. Yeah. Well then. Dark Down East podcast does a pretty uh, cool summary of this story, very much like a storytelling angle. And at the end of it, the host brings up how in the majority of cases, a person's appearance, like whether it's race, gender, clothing, tattoos, piercings, Usually those types of things negatively affect the outcome of a case. And in Jesse's case, it was the opposite. We sometimes hear that term pretty privilege. And I think this is definitely one of those cases where it applies. Well, I mean, if you got half the jurors singing to you and buying you chocolates. Yep. Yeah. Come on. She was an attractive, young, white woman. And... People could not resist fawning over her. Now, she may have drifted into relative obscurity, but she wasn't completely forgotten. Uh, She died March 15th, 1971, and her funeral was attended by nearly 200 mourners. So people did still know her name. So she was alive during the Boston Strangler cases. Ah, that's full circle. Weird. (laughs) She is buried in Peabody's Cedar Grove Cemetery, not by her late husband, which I half expected, uh, and he is in St. Mary's. And that is the story of the smiling widow and the kiss and tell cop. There you go. What do you think? God. So no. So if she was found innocent of the murder. No one else was ever pursued. No one else was ever investigated. After that. I mean, the police, they investigators, they knew she did it. So once she's found innocent, that's it. Can't do anything. No one, I mean, I guess today you could go after them civilly. Right. I don't think you could. I'm, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, maybe. I, 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 don't, I don't know. Wrongful death suit. Yeah. I mean, I guess that maybe like his brother. I, it, his, he, father, his father was also pretty close to the family as well. Like, so I guess you could have come from that. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, which honestly they probably should have done because she's sitting on, on top of that money. Yeah. She got a lot. She made money off of her husband's murder. 
which yeah, is to, today out, outrageous when you think about it. I feel like um, the there's there would have been liable and probably a, a civil case and you know money and trusts and and these sorts of things. On well, today's world too, if jurors decide form a quartet, they would have been they'd dismissed. be removed immediately. If you find out that a juror buys the defendant a box of chocolates, you're done. Yep. Get out of here. People, you know, we talk about in the witch trials this need for entertainment and yeah. how people, they joined in because they were so bored and their lives were dry. They also and couldn't drink. It, and I'm not saying that these right? people weren't living. I mean, I think they still drank. But, you know. But, <laughs> but I think, you know. The 30s is slightly different than the 1690s. Yeah. But again, human nature, people like a good story. They... <sighs> Storytelling, man. Yep. Yeah. And it this played out all over the country in these newspapers. And people ate it up as much as Jesse Costello ate up the reporters. Like the attention that she got. That's wild. Well... Ugh, it's one of my favorite stories about Salem now. I think about this case all the time. I love it. I don't, I don't think, maybe I'll, maybe I'll write a book on it. It's just, <laughs> it's just so, like, there's so much in the newspapers uh -huh. that I had to leave out, and I probably could have done two parts on this, but ugh, it's just, I don't know what it is. They, they capture, I feel bad. I feel bad because she got away with murder. Yeah. But I am also yeah. still incredibly glued to this story. Yeah. Because of just how it played out. Arriving in a limo. Jurors buying you chocolates. What are you? Them reporting on her dentist trips. Get like, out of here. We have nothing better to say, but Jesse Costello went to the dentist and we have to tell you about it. She arrived in a limo. What hat she wear? Get, get out of here. Crazy. Crazy. Get out of here. Get out of here. That's great. Well. Did it live up to expectations, Jeffrey? Yeah. Yeah. No, I was, I was, I was entranced good I was like okay what's gonna what's and like gonna i said next? like the the other shoe dropping i was waiting for i was like okay how does this play in and i i think if you'd asked me i would have said guilty but with the other factors well, yeah you would think she had so much against her there was yeah. so much evidence it should have been a easy boom Done. oh well well we hope you guys enjoyed our uh our stab at true crime <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I don't think this will be the last time we do this. This is fun. And find some more murders in the area. Yeah, well, I'm sure there's plenty. I'm sure there's plenty. But with that, thanks for listening. See you later. <laughs>